get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And uh, we thought we would look at a subject that we've covered before on the show Tech Stuff, but it was it was quite a while ago. Uh, yeah, it was back on July 4th, 2011. So I was I was not here yet. Uh, Mr. Chris Follett and Jonathan did an episode on Bitcoin. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Bitcoin's another thing that you probably heard about if you listen to our sister show, a little-known show called uh, "Stuff You Should Know." Uh, yeah, um, I mean, you know, they're they're really up-and-coming folks. I think yeah. I think that you should give them a chance. Those, uh, but those kids are going places. <laughs> no, uh, Josh and Chuck did an episode on how Bitcoin works on June eighteenth, twenty thirteen. We also spoke again about it briefly in our twenty thirteen wrap up and twenty fourteen prediction episode. Yep. So, uh, so why are we talking about it now? Well, as it turns out, this is just one of those stories that is constantly in the news and particularly as of the time we're recording uh, this podcast and the second part, because this is going to be a two-parter. There's just too much to talk about for it want to be one episode. Uh, we're recording this at the beginning of March 2014. And at this time, there are lots and lots of stories about disasters that are befalling uh, various institutions that are uh, that rely on Bitcoin. It has been a really wild ride uh, for the past five months or so. Yeah. So we want to go and explain what Bitcoin is, how it works, you know, give a refresher on all of that and, and talk a little bit about its origin, because some interesting possible news has unfolded even as of the day we're recording this podcast. Mm-hmm. That being March 6th, 2014. Yeah. So we want to talk about some of the, the stories behind how it got started and the people behind it. Uh, to really set the ground for the next episode, which will be more about the controversies that are going on. Uh, so to start off, what the heck is a Bitcoin? Well, it's clearly a digital cryptocurrency. Well, obviously, I meant beyond that. <laughs> yeah, it's a digital cryptocurrency, which if you break that down, digital means, of course, it belongs in the digital realm. Ultimately, we're talking about zeros and ones here. It lives on the Internet. Yep. Yes. Crypto would mean some form of secrecy or encoding. Uh, you would uh, to put something in a cryptogram means that you have hidden it somehow in some form of you, you've done transformation on on information. And unless you have a key to unlock that transformation, you can't get at what that original info actually is. Uh, right. It's a security measure. Yeah. And so currency, obviously, that is something that represents wealth or, uh, or value. Money really. of some kind. Yeah. Yes, we, we've actually talked a lot about money recently. Yeah. Uh, turns out tax season really just weighs heavily on our minds. Brings but, it uh, on us. Yeah. So so this Bitcoin currency, Now, and we should go ahead and say it is not the only digital currency out there. No, no. There are actually quite a few other ones out there. And maybe someday we'll do episodes on those. The reason we're concentrating on Bitcoin is, again, one, it's the most well-known, at least among the general public. Right. And two, it's been in the news quite a bit recently. So it depends on a really complex algorithm. In other words, a very complex uh, mathematical system that tracks transactions. So technically, every Bitcoin contains within it a history of all transactions on the Bitcoin platform. Right. And this is this is for a couple of different reasons. One is it helps define how difficult it is to find a Bitcoin. Two, it tracks the transaction so that way no one can spend the same Bitcoin more than once. Right. Uh, and it's it's again one of those things that is 
kind of ingenious in that by building it directly into the structure of the currency itself, not only does it track it, but it becomes part of it. So it's almost like if a dollar bill contained inside the dollar bill every a record of every time that dollar had been used on something. Mm-hmm. So that way you would know, like when you got that dollar, you knew what it had been. You wouldn't necessarily know who used it, but you would know what it was used for. Uh, personally, I think that would be absolutely terrifying. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, that, that we'll get into some of that in our second episode. Anyway, it's an interesting concept. Uh, and it, it's also a little scary to people because since it's digital and since digital means that you can manipulate stuff with computers, a lot of people question whether or not it is a uh, a viable currency because they're worried that you might be able to do stuff like a lot of happens. What happens if I just copy this dollar over and over and over and over and over again? So now I have many dollars instead of the one dollar that I started with, except instead of dollar, of course, we'd be talking about bitcoins. And uh, the cryptocurrency part of it is also meant to protect against that, to make sure that you cannot take a single Bitcoin copy it a billion times and suddenly become a Bitcoin billionaire and then simultaneously crash the value of Bitcoins worldwide. This entire system was proposed by someone calling themselves Satoshi Nakamoto back in 2008. And I say someone calling themselves that because actually this this is a really big controversy right at this very moment. Like as of the morning of the day that we are recording this podcast, news broke and news is kind of in big quotation marks there on Newsweek. A, a journalist is saying that this Satoshi Nakamoto person, which was once believed very strongly among the community of Bitcoin users to be a pseudonym, possibly for an entire group of people, right. is actually a a dude. Yeah, a 64-year-old dude. A 64-year-old Japanese-American dude. So this, and not only that, a 64-year-old Japanese-American dude who's named Satoshi Nakamoto. It's actually his name, not a pseudonym. Uh, and as you were saying, news in big quotation marks, because when you read this story, you realize that there's nothing that directly connects Nakamoto of the story with Nakamoto of the person who proposed Bitcoin. Now, there is someone who used that that screen name of Satoshi Nakamoto right. to create a uh, proposal for Bitcoin and published it, right? Right, right. That's that thing in 2008 that I was talking about. So... There's this other person who actually has that name and also seems to have a background that would be uh, compatible with someone who would create this kind of cr- cryptocurrency, at least on a surface level. Uh, certainly. And also uh, several members of, of actual Nakamoto's family have said that it would make sense and that furthermore, he will never confirm this. Right. And that um, they themselves have no knowledge of it. So therefore, right. they can't confirm it. Uh, right. And and this entire uh, part of the part of the big quotes involved here are also that this this Newsweek investigation, um, it just it's it's very it reads very uh, sensationalistically. Yeah. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence and, and no hard corroborating evidence. Uh, it's it's. It's compelling circumstantial evidence. Uh, certainly. And, the, it's, and it's a very compelling story. Yeah, uh, yeah. William William Gibson of famous science fiction writer fame yeah. um, called the story on Twitter Pynchon-esque, <laughs> which uh, referring to Thomas Pynchon, of course, another uh, I guess you could call him a science fiction writer in yeah. a way. Yeah. Uh, but 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 yeah. So so this was this investigation was done by one Lee or Leah McGrath Goodman. 
And it was published online on March 6th, 2014 for the print version of Newsweek that I believe is not coming out until March 14th, 2014. Yeah, so we got a a sneak peek. And it it, it set the world a Twitter, particularly (laughs) on Twitter. And also Reddit. People are kind of upset about this story. Well, yeah. And we can talk about the upset part, too. I mean, some people are, of course, reacting in that good old Internet way where because the reporter happens to... Be a lady. Yeah, she committed yeah. that terrible sin on the Internet of being female. Right. Um, yeah. First of all, I, I know this is a tangent, but gentlemen, uh, here's just a just something from me to all of you out there. Never, ever, ever attack anyone based upon their gender. It just bespeaks more of you than anything else. That goes for the ladies as well. All y'all just just don't do that. Just grow stop the it. heck up. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, beyond that, uh, the the interesting things here, like they she uncovered that he had history working for some very important projects, many of which had top level secrecy involved. Oh yeah, yeah. I, he, he's a mathematician and computer scientist who has worked for the U.S. military, the FAA, and several major corporations yeah. that we know of. I mean. I, th- he's a very secretive dude. Yes, he, he seems to, the, the word paranoid has been used to describe him and I think it's completely accurate. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, unjustifiable necessarily because if you're someone who's worked on these high level projects, then clearly you have a heightened level of knowledge about the stuff what goes on out there. I mean, if it's top secret, then very few people know about it besides right. you. Sure, sure. And and I assume that much of that stuff is kind of scary. No, I, I, I imagine so. I mean, you're talking about stuff that is probably still to this day classified. Absolutely. Um, but so Nakamoto, the figurehead at any rate, um, was a really active voice in the cryptography and in Bitcoin communities in general until... Uh, Late 2010 or so. Yeah, he ended up kind of, um, <laughs> it's funny, he, he passed the torch to a person who didn't realize he was grabbing a torch. <laughs> uh, it was a guy, a guy named Avin Anderson, who is one of the, um, one of the, kind of the spokesman for Bitcoin these days. Uh, uh, he became the spokesperson when Nakamoto put his email on Bitcoin's main webpage. Yeah, essentially as the contact info. Right. Nakamoto said, do you mind? Look, you know, you're helping me out with fixing the code for Bitcoin to make it better. Uh, do you mind if I put your email address up on the website? And Anderson said, sure, sure. go ahead. And so then Nakamoto puts up Anderson's email. And then removes his Nakamoto's email. So now Anderson's the only email up there. And that's when Anderson said, yeah, that's when I found out that I'm kind of in charge. I guess I own this now. Yeah, huh. kind of. Yeah, it's, it was definitely one of those. I mean, it, it, the, the story in Newsweek, when you read it and you start reading about the personality of the, the person Nakamoto, who mm-hmm. may or may not indeed be this figurehead, figurehead Nakamoto, right. you start picking up on things where you're thinking, well... I can at least see from a personality perspective, this is very consistent. Certainly. Right. This is someone who who eschews any does not want any attention directed to, toward himself. He, he prefers to remain anonymous so much so that uh, some attention is given. Actually, quite a bit of attention in the article is given to the fact that Nakamoto is not uh, living in a particularly fancy house. It's not a lush environment. It's- uh, certainly not. And and his family has even reported that he's had a little bit of, of money trouble with uh, he's, he's had a few medical issues yeah. over the past few years. And, and he suffered a stroke mm-hmm. and some other medical problems. Yeah. And and his family says, well, if 
if Nakamoto are like this guy that we know is in fact this Bitcoin billionaire or, or millionaire at the very least, yeah. because because uh, all of the the early adopters and early workers in Bitcoin have made out really well conveniently. Sure. Well, yeah, because, uh, you know, in the early days of mining Bitcoins, it was easier to mine them. That's something that's you know, part of the system. Yeah. Quick refresher course. Bitcoins are released in blocks. And at least originally they were released in, in fairly large blocks of Bitcoins. And the way you would you get a block of Bitcoins is you would, quote unquote, mine them by using your computer to solve uh, mathematical problems. Mm-hmm. Now, those problems were based upon the information contained within the Bitcoin itself. And uh, the problems got harder the more computer power was dedicated to try and find Bitcoins. So in other words, the more people are looking, the harder it is to find, which kind of mimics the way a physical commodity works. If you think about gold and you are uh, an old timey prospector out in San Francisco just before the gold rush, it's not it's not impossible to think that you with your pickaxe and your and your pan and your donkey are able to find a significant amount of gold. But then as other people learn that gold is in them, thar hills, they swarm them, thar hills, and it becomes a lot harder to find gold because now you've got people who have much larger equipment and much more sophisticated means of getting at the gold. Sure, sure. And it, it becomes a little bit more uh, sparse as it is distributed across this larger population. Yes. And in fact, you get smaller and smaller deposits because you've mined away that first the amount. Big vein. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So same thing with bitcoins, except instead of using physical mining equipment, you're using computer power. Uh, right. And so Nakamoto, the figurehead with his uh, digital pickaxes and donkeys, yeah. um, has according to reports, held as many as a million Bitcoins, which is a few hundred million dollars in U.S. exchange. Yeah. Now, granted, that that value in U.S. dollars has <laughs> has um, has there's been some variability. And we'll talk more about that in the second podcast, too. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. But, but so 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 that's one strange thing. Um, there are several uh, suggested reasons why Nakamoto, the person might be living small. Uh, that, that could be completely plausible and not contradictory of the fact that he is, in fact, Nakamoto the figurehead. But it could also just be part of a desire on, on Nakamoto's part to draw attention away from himself and towards the currency. Well, yeah. And and since since he's worried, here's the thing about those those transactions being recorded in every Bitcoin. If Nakamoto were to start uh, selling off his Bitcoins in order to get some other currency for it. Uh, several things would happen. One, he would have to pay taxes on it. Right. Uh, two, people would know because those transactions get distributed across the entire Bitcoin network. So you get this point where everyone's saying, hey, look, that bank of coins that we know belong to Nakamoto are now being uh, are now entering circulation. Therefore, he's getting rid of them. He's selling he's them off. He's cashing them in, yeah. So it may, and then if, of course, Nakamoto the man were to have a, a measurable difference, you know, his standard of living were to change dramatically, then you would say, okay, there's the smoking gun, right? You saw the digital uh, effect of these coins being sold off and the physical effect of this this guy who was living a very private life suddenly having a turnaround in his lifestyle. You would say, all right, there's the connection. Then this guy is definitely the Nakamoto of the story. Sure. And Anderson has said that that Nakamoto, the figurehead, once emailed him, um, and I quote, I wish you wouldn't keep talking about me as a mysterious shadowy figure. The press just turns that into a pirate currency angle. Maybe instead make it about the open source project and give more credit to your dev contributors. It helps motivate them. 
Yeah, and uh, uh, it's interesting too. I mean, first of all, Anderson says he never talked to Nakamoto on the phone or anything like that. It was always through an email, and it was through untraceable email. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I, I believe there was a future um, exchange between the two of them where uh, uh, Anderson or Anderson said, I'm going to go talk to the CIA. They've expressed interest in Bitcoin, and I want to explain to them how this could be the future of currency and could be an amazing thing that could change the world. And that's the last he ever heard from Nakamoto, which suggests that perhaps Nakamoto did not want the attention of any kind of governmental agency Having worked for them in the past, that's a possibility. I mean, I assuming that the person and the figurehead are, in fact, the same entity. Right. Because, again, we don't have any direct connection. There's a lot of very uh, compelling circumstantial evidence. So we don't know, ultimately, whether Nakamoto the man is Nakamoto the person who came up with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the various stories kind of lend a, at least enough credence where it's it's – it's a possibility that it, you can't just easily dismiss. Uh, certainly, yeah. I, there, there is also part of the controversy about all of this and part of why people are upset about the story breaking is that it's been suggested that Nakamoto, the person's livelihood and safety are in danger if people know who he is and know that he kind of holds the mental keys to Bitcoin. Yeah, there's definitely that as well. And some people have directly criticized Newsweek and this reporter in particular for doing that. Uh, as I said before, not all of the criticisms are directed in a way that's actually uh, toward the or yeah, legitimate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, there Polite, may there yeah. may be valid criticisms. I'm not dismissing that, but there's a right and a wrong way of doing that, folks. So anyway, yeah, it could very well be that uh, that this man's privacy has been uh, uh, violated in a way that could see harm uh, visited upon him in the future. That, that's a that's a concern a lot of people have uh, on the the reporter side. They've said that all the information they had was stuff that was already publicly available. It wasn't like they went and dug all this information up in places that uh, that anyone could uh, could not have done. Like any person could have had the same uh, experience. Any intrepid person who chose to contact this dude through his model train communities yeah. and uh, visit his house unannounced. Um, yeah, making yeah. him feel threatened enough that he called the police before he refu- before he uh, uh, engaged in any sort of conversation. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah, just anyone like that. And the conversation, by the way, did not uh, once it got to Bitcoin, he's like, "Yep, this this talk is over," and he left. So it whether he has anything to do with Bitcoin uh, again, definitively, we can't say. But we've got a lot more to say about Bitcoin. Before we do that, however, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, so Nakamoto, uh, the man and the figurehead, both have really tried to stay away from the public eye. Uh, and in general, the, it's, there's this interesting conflict where you've got a community that really wants this currency to, to exist. They want it to work and 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 do well. And yeah. And they want this to be the future of currency. On the other hand, you have a lot of people who are responsible in some way for the currency's existence who don't really want to talk about anything at all. And this conflict also grows into the fact of what the currency is intended to do. You see, it's it's not a centralized or regulated currency. The way most currencies work, there's something that are issued by a governmental body. Uh, right. And the weight of that government, therefore, is behind the currency. They're, they're usually insured, in fact, by that government body. Yeah. So you've got some sort of government that is re- both responsible for the uh, the currency to 
to stay in value. Uh, and that, you know, ultimately, if something goes wrong, they'll bail you out in some way or uh, another. And Bitcoin is different. It is not centralized. It's decentralized. The idea here being that because it's not dependent upon any one government, should any one government have major problems, which we've seen, I mean, there's problems all around the world where governments rise and fall. And as a result, the currency often takes a huge beating during those those times of, of turmoil. Oh, yeah. And I mean, we've seen that repeatedly in the past few years. Yeah. This would allow you to have a global currency that you could use through, you know, no matter where you are and no matter where you're trying to purchase something that is not dependent upon any one government. So in theory, uh, it would remain its its value would remain uh, um unaffected by whatever, ha- you know, regional conflicts happen to be going on at the time. So, you know, that's one of the ideas. Another one is that because there's no governmental regulation or, quote unquote, interference, anyone who has a deep distrust for the government, no matter where in the world you happen to live, and right. no matter what sort of government happens to be uh, in, in charge, of you personally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, then this would allow you an opportunity to work outside of that, to have a money that you could use that does not in any way uh, benefit that. outside of the system. You know, yeah. And whatever anarchist fight club style yeah. definition you, you want to take on that. And and one more one more quote from from this kind of ridiculous inflammatory Newsweek piece, by the way, on on in line with all of this. Uh, uh, the reporter tracked down one of Nakamoto's the Nakamoto, the person's daughters uh, by the name of Eileen Mitchell. And she said of her father, I quote again. He is very wary of government interference in general. When I was little, there was a game we used to play. He would say, pretend the government agencies are coming after you. And I would hide in the closet. <laughs> yes. So we, you know, the, in general, we've had a lot of uh, a lot of the the folks who are, are big fans of bitcoins have been called many things, including anarchists. Some say that uh, it's it's, you know, it's largely in the United States anyway, largely a libertarian kind of. A uh, fan base. In fact, Nakamoto, the person, self-identifies as libertarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there are other people who are interested in Bitcoin who don't necessarily identify as either anarchists or libertarians. They are investors who are interested in Bitcoin because it's a w- potential way to make a heck of a lot of money. If you've ever looked at the value of Bitcoin versus the U.S. dollar over the past. Uh, you know, it went from, you know, a couple of bucks for a Bitcoin to astronomical levels at one point. Uh, over a thousand. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there the the actual community is very diverse. Uh, yeah. And in, in addition to it being called an, an anarchist's dream or a investment opportunity, it's also been used as an opportunity to uh, conduct transactions that would otherwise be outside of the law. Right. We'll have a lot more to say about some of the um, the less uh, respectable ways one can use one's bitcoins, or at least one could have used one's bitcoins uh, in the next episode. There's some other interesting little technical factors I'd like to to cover before we we wrap up on this one. The one of the things that is interesting, like we mentioned, you know, a physical commodity like gold. Ultimately, there is a finite amount of that on Earth, you know, so. Once you mine all the gold that is available on Earth, that's it. All the gold that is available has been mined. It's now out in the world in some other form. Right. All right. Same thing with Bitcoins. The idea was that there needed to be a finite number because if it was infinite, then ultimately that... That's a meaningless currency. Yeah. How could you ever expect that to 
to maintain its value. Mm-hmm. So there are 21 million Bitcoins, and that is all there ever will be. Now, not all of those are in circulation. Uh, right. Like we were saying earlier, these are released in, in batches. Yeah, blocks. And, and in increasingly small, smaller batches. Right, right. You, you, and not only would you see fewer Bitcoins per block once you, uh, once you get further down the line, eventually you get fractions of a Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin itself can be divided up into eight decimal places. So the base unit is technically point zero 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 one Bitcoins or BTC. So you could. Or or Satoshis. I've I've seen it referred to that. (laughs) So you could you could have, you know, that tiny amount of a Bitcoin. And depending upon the value of a full Bitcoin, it could still be a meaningful amount of money. Uh, And once you get toward the end of the cycle, the life cycle of all the Bitcoins that are available, that's kind of the amount you're going to get per mining operation. Now, in a way, this is also meant to make people back off of mining because the amount of effort you put forth trying to get at that money is never balanced out by what you actually succeed in getting. Uh, Right. It's going to be a smaller return. Yeah. And so that's actually been one of the big, uh, big arguments against Bitcoin is that the amount that you put forth, the return on your investment isn't equaled out. So you're investing way more than you're getting back, especially to be competitive, because like I said earlier, the more computing power you dedicate to this, the more likely you are to mine a Bitcoin. Now, just because you're more likely to mine it doesn't mean you're going to be successful. So there are going to be times where you're trying and trying and trying and someone else mines the next block. And then you have to start all over for the the, the subsequent the, or the, the following block, rather. Uh, right. And it's not it's not as though it's some kind of slot machine. It's just whoever completes that code first. Yeah. So and, and it's really, you know, just think of like a very hard math problem where you don't have all the answers and you're trying to make lots and lots of guesses. Someone's going to guess uh, before everyone else. And sometimes that might be you if you happen to have enough computer power to be able to guess really, really quickly. So uh, people have been putting together some some pretty hefty computer power in order to accomplish these tasks. Yeah, we're talking like uh, the equivalent of what a supercomputer would be, although you're not not your traditional supercomputer. Parallel processing is the key. That's the real important thing with this kind of approach. And sometimes people have said, well, you know, if I just downloaded a mining program on my little laptop and set it to go in the idle time, I would never mine a coin. And just the, the, the chances are astronomically against me. So what if I join forces and join up with another group? And there are these little mining companies, little, some of them are quite large, but they're, they're mining pools, really, that you can join. And some of them are pretty big. There's one that's called ghash.io or ghash.io that is particularly powerful. It has, you know, it's, it's been gaining members steadily over time. And there's one major flaw with the way, uh, Bitcoin works, which is that if anyone were to have 50%, be contributing 50% or more, of the total computing power dedicated to mining bitcoins, that entity would then also have the ability to block or even reverse bitcoin transactions across the network. So if you have either a computer that is uh, that's uh, half as powerful as everything that's out there, <laughs> so that you you have like the deep thought machine 
and it and it is just as strong as at least everything else that's out there, then you would be able to do this. Or if you had, say, a mining pool that had about 50 percent of the computing power dedicated to trying to find these bitcoins, you would have this power, which could be very disruptive. I mean, clearly, if I had the ability to deny or reverse any kind of transaction in dollars, I'd be the biggest jerk in the world. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, you don't you don't really want that latte. So that latte is not yours. Yeah, it, it's kind of like uh, like like if you've ever had a lottery pool at your office, except if instead of just buying a whole bunch of tickets, your lottery pool bought a whole bunch of tickets and physically prevented other people from doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So it would be pretty ugly. Yeah, like everyone who tried to buy a ticket, their their purchase was rejected. Um, yeah, this is kind of crazy. And uh, and the thing is, is that this G-Hash mining pool, uh, it doesn't technically have, at least of the as of the recording of this podcast, it does not have 50% of the computing power. Uh, no, but it is, I mean, the fact that it has approached 50% is yes. still pretty scary. And at certain times, it has had effectively 50% power. So while... You wouldn't say over the course of a day it had 50% power. At certain times of the day, it kind of evened out to that as certain computers drop off of the network and others join on. So there have been times where it could do that. And, you know, there have been instances of transactions being denied largely to things like gambling sites, which, Mm -hmm. again, kind of falls into that, depending upon where you are, can fall into that illegal uh, activity. activity. So it's one of those things that is among the many problems of Bitcoin. It's one of the few that has to do directly with the currency itself. Most of the problems we're going to talk about in our next episode have to do with the people who are using the currency. Yeah, or the architecture that supports the use of the currency. So it's more like the banks and the exchanges that are the problem and not necessarily the currency itself. But that what you're going to say for our next episode. So to wrap up, guys, Bitcoins, uh, stay tuned because we're going to cover all the crazy controversies that have happened recently and explain what is up with them and why they're important. Uh, and if you guys have any suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, whether it's Bitcoin related, maybe you're maybe you're just tired of us talking about money and you say, please talk about anything other than money. Let us know. Or if you got something specific, let us know that, too. You can email us. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter. Our handle at all three is techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 